Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co-founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well-being. Now I'd like to introduce my co-host and my friend, the executive director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety, Megan Ferraro. Hi, Megan. Hi, Karen. It's good to see you today. Hi, Megan. It's great to see you too. I'm so happy to be here and I'm really excited to introduce our listeners to Sharon McNabb from NCOAA. Sharon, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Megan. Good morning, Karen. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk to you and your your audience. Well, we're excited to have you and we're really looking forward to educating our listeners uh, to about a whole new topic of which you are an expert. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your story? Thank you, Megan. I'd love to. So um, I am an electrical engineer and I uh, have spent 30 years in automotive. And um, in 20, 2006, I moved into what I thought was my dream home with my two young daughters. Um, and uh, I guess they were, you know, teenagers at the time. Um, I, I, shortly after that, I started experiencing uh, multitasking issues, memory problems, coordination issues, got into a couple of car accidents. Um, my daughters also started having problems, learning issues, a, a couple of other items. And um, shortly after that, um, I got into a couple of car accidents, a fall from the ladder, um, misdiagnosed with traumatic brain injury, PTSD, started having seizures, uh, COPD, and diagnosed, or I should say misdiagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Wow. And all of that was just a series of carbon monoxide poisonings from leaks at several appliances in my home. Now I mentioned my daughters also had issues, but I was in the home 24 seven, you know, they often went to visit their dad or they went to school. I worked from home quite a bit. Um, they were living in different parts of the home. One daughter who had very little symptoms was living in a completely separate part of the home that had a different furnace. So the symptoms weren't, um, uh, common among all of us. And so it was really hard for the doctors to diagnose CO poisoning when all the symptoms were very different between us. Wow. That must've been so difficult to, to navigate. How did you eventually figure out that it was CO poisoning? Um, so it was a by happenstance. Um, a repairman came over, said that they smelt natural gas. Um, I had the gas company come over. They said, yes, you do have a natural gas leak. Unfortunately, the utility company didn't have a CO meter on them when they came into the home. Uh, they just said, yes, you have a natural gas leak. So I called a plumber to have that natural gas leak 
repaired. And they said, well, I noticed you're walking with a cane and you don't seem like you're feeling very well. Um, you have this bubbling around the top of your hot water heater, which means that the flu gas, the poisonous flu gas with carbon monoxide is not going outside the home, but it's coming back in. You should probably have that checked. Wow. So I did. And um, it turned out there were actually four leaks in my home going off at different times of the day, year, and all of them contributing to the negative health effects that we were experiencing. So Sharon, how long was this going on for? It, um, it was going on for about 11 years. Before you actually was diagnosed? Correct. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we started um, the nonprofit because to me as an engineer, um, it didn't make sense that, you know, somebody who, you know, theoretically does everything right, you know, how could this happen to them? Before I purchased the home, I had had the home inspected. I had uh, my appliances repaired and by professional HVAC engineers. I went to the best doctors. I even had a CO alarm in my home. And so I thought that I was doing everything right, but yet there are gaps in the safety net that allow a lot of people to fall through. There's a number of different cracks in that safety net. And we as an organization, NCOAA, is trying to shore up or sew up those gaps in that safety net. Well, that's incredible because I can't imagine how much time it took you to put the pieces back together after being exposed to a poison for so much time. So it's incredible that you've been able to shift and focus your energy on educating others. I mean, it's really very admirable. Thank you. Um, yes, you probably know it. I find it somewhat therapeutic as well. Um, and, you know, knowing that, you know, this, uh, you know, tragedy uh, can be avoided uh, spurs me on towards helping others. That's great. Now, um, you say you had a CO monitor in your house. Was it where was it positioned? Where do you recommend people position them? How many should they have? Could you give our listeners some safety tips or things that they should be thinking about or looking for when they're either walking around the home they've owned for years or moving into a brand new one? Absolutely. So um, carbon monoxide alarms are good, uh, but the alarms that you buy at the big box stores, the Home Depots or Lowe's of the world, they are designed to be life safety devices. They are not designed to prevent injury, which means that um, they will, they're designed and manufactured to go off or alarm at 70 parts per million on a time-weighted average over the course of, of one to four hours. So theoretically, your children can be breathing 69 parts per million 
for days, weeks, or months without that alarm warning. The World Health Organization says no more than four parts per million to prevent injury. Wow, that's a significant difference. Now, why are the alarms set up that way? Can you, or what should we do? <laughs> now I'm thinking, oh no, where did my husband buy the CO alarms for this new house that we're living in? Right, right. Um, so it is a bit of a complicated issue. Um, there was a mandate in Chicago in 1994 that um, a, that um, all homes had to have CO alarms. At the time, the alarm was much lower. I believe it was nine parts per million in line with the EPA recommendations. Uh, however, that mandate went in right before the holidays on a very cold winter in Chicago. And the, imagine the families coming together, cooking dinners in the oven, you know, people congregating, more showers, more heat. The alarm started going off all over Chicago. In addition to that, there was a, a weird temperature inversion where the CO in the atmosphere came down uh, to the ground level, and that CO was below that nine parts per, mission, uh, parts per million threshold. So alarms were going off on this couple of days called the night of sirens. And the problem was is not that the alarms were going off, the problem was not that the alarms were going off, but that they didn't train the fire department and the uh, repair personnel to adequately understand CO poisoning or investigate. The equipment that they were using was very old and dated. Some of them used test tubes, test tube carbon monoxide detectors, um, some of them couldn't detect lower than 100 parts per million. So what you had was no trouble found. Mm. In actuality, they all the alarms were picking up CO. Uh, it's just that the investigators weren't able to detect it with the detection units that they had available to them. Wow. And so shortly thereafter, the home alarms levels were raised to what we have today, the 70 parts per million over several hours. Wow. <laughs> I know that's oh a gosh. lot. <laughs> oh, I know it's making me wonder. Okay. So what's the solution? Are there alarms that monitor for the lower rate that the World Health Organization recommends? There are portable detectors that go down to zero parts per million I carry this wherever I go. So um, if, I, if I'm if i traveling um, on a plane or in a hotel motel, um, if I'm going to the doctor's office, um, I would highly recommend just to, you know, grab one of these. They're, they're not terribly expensive. Um, I believe they're about $130. Um, if you go on the SensorCon uh, website, you can plug in NCOAA into the discount code and get a 25% discount. So um, I just, I, I really, until we're able to lower the 
home alarm standards, I highly recommend a portable detector. That's great advice for for me um, and for our listeners. And so for those of us, hopefully everyone has a carbon monoxide alarm in their house. Is there a certain place in the house that it should be installed? I've heard all different things. And so I'm wondering if you can give us some expert advice. Sure. So Carbon monoxide is generated when a fuel burning appliance burns uh, that fuel with oxygen. And carbon monoxide is created when there's too much fuel and not enough oxygen. So um, alarms should be placed anywhere there's fuel burning appliances. So if you have uh, a gas dryer or a gas oven or range, um, if you drive a vehicle that uses gas, you know, put one in your, put one in your garage, right outside your garage, um, by your hot water heaters, uh, by your furnaces, um, anywhere that there is fuel burning appliances. Um, and they also suggest one outside a bedroom door within, I believe it's 12 feet. And with carbon monoxide alarms, they're not like a fire alarm. Um, oxygen, I'm sorry, the air that we breathe and carbon monoxide kind of disperses evenly. So you can have it on a ceiling or a wall or low. Uh, just keep it six inches from a corner. Okay. That's good advice. All right. And then you mentioned um, that you take this portable monitor with you. Um, we've heard about some really tragic stories in Mexico over the last year. And so it sounds like you probably would recommend people take these portable devices with you when you travel. Absolutely. Not all states um, have mandates for CO alarms in their hotels, motels, um, and very few have uh, regulations for alarms in existing hotels, you know, built, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so we think that we're being protected um, on the in these um, safe spaces, these hotels, but oftentimes uh, they're uh, they don't have the proper equipment. Wow, it's just can be extremely disconcerting, right? Just when you're going into a hotel, not even realizing that that could happen. Uh, I think also I saw that there was some new legislation that um, I think that you were a part of, Sharon, just around um, carbon monoxide and the keyless car ignitions, right? Right, so um, I believe uh, Senator Blumenthal and Mackey um, introduce that legislation. Um, I believe that that has not gone very far. Um, and uh, it's disappointing because uh, there are a number of people who have suffered tragedies um, with their cars not uh, thinking that their car is shut down in the garage, but then not waking up the next day. It typically happens with um, older, our older generation, but it also happens with teenagers or people who are just busy and, and, you know, unpacking their car or the, 
the kids are in the back seat and they just our cars are so quiet nowadays that it's easy to mistake an off car for a paused car. So we would love to see that legislation move forward. What can our listeners do to move that legislation forward? Should we call our representatives and our senators and encourage them to move that legislation forward? Absolutely. Great. We'll include information on that on that piece of legislation in the show notes in the session description so that our, our listeners can be helpful in advocating for this important piece of change. And then I think there were some car companies that were already working to rectify this on their own with the cars turning off automatically after being parked for a little while as well. That's right. Uh, I believe Ford, General Motors, and Toyota all have implemented a five-minute shutoff. And that's that's great, but that doesn't go nearly far enough. Think about um, a, a vehicle um, that has a carbon monoxide pr producing engine. And, you know, you have a teenager who's driving a 10-year-old car, and maybe they run over a curb, and they're not going to tell you because, okay, it's running fine, and I don't want my parents to worry. But the problem is, is that that leak, that um, any rust or disconnection in the exhaust can leak into the cabin of that vehicle and cause some really bad damage. And you know, think about how carbon monoxide affects the body, coordination, sleepiness. If there's an accident, who would think to check carbon monoxide? Yeah, that's such a good point. So important for our listeners to be aware of that if there are any kind of unknown side effects or something's happening that you can't quite put your finger on to ask to be tested. And is that a simple blood test, Sharon? How, how would you be diagnosed with carbon monoxide poisoning? Yeah, that is a great question. And, you know, um, I hate to just be a complete naysayer, but the testing is really difficult. Um, you test for carbon monoxide by using uh, a blood test uh, for COHB. Um, and the cutoff is about 2% to be considered poisoned. Um, so COHB has a four hour half-life. So if your doctor suspect, or if you suspect, or your doctor suspects CO poisoning, they have to write a script and you have to go to a lab that does arterial blood draws and have blood gas analyzing. And I think that the average is about 60% of our labs today have that capability. And all of that has to be done within four hours of your last exposure. Mm -hmm. If not, you run the risk of a false negative. Doctor rules out CO poisoning, pro provides a prescription for whatever symptom that's ailing you, and you go back to continue being poisoned. So we're advocating for a brand new FDA breath tester. It's non-invasive. It can be used in the field. It's very inexpensive, less than $600. We believe that every lab, hospital, 
doctor should be using these in triage, very similar to the way that, you know, you get hooked up with a blood pressure monitor or, um, you know, a finger probe to measure your oxygen. Uh, that would be incredible because I'm just thinking you go to the doctor's office, he tells you to go to the lab, you go back to the office, you do a bunch of meetings and you go to the lab on your way home and already you've been out of the place of exposure for as, you know, could be as long as eight hours or even more. Yeah, it's very, very problematic. And, you know, um, we haven't talked about the symptoms, but the symptoms are really all over the map. So, you know, say someone had um, is suffering from what appears to be a heart attack. If an EMT shows up at the home without, without a meter and um, they expect, suspect a heart attack, the protocol is to put oxygen on and send them to the hospital. But oxygen reduces that half-life from four hours down to one hour. Mm -hmm. So by the time they even make it to the hospital, it's too late to check. Wow. So it's it's a really big problem. And I really appreciate your uh, inviting me on to kind of, you know, talk about um you know, all the really hard work that needs to be done to change some of these issues. Absolutely. Well, maybe you could leave our listeners with the top three things that they can do to protect themselves and their families and keep them safe. Absolutely. So invest in a home alarm. Absolutely. But also invest in a portable alarm. And I would keep these on my child's backpack if they go to, you know, a sleepover or to school daycare, uh, after school programs, um, you know, a pool party, boating, um, always make sure that this is with them. And then uh, last but not least, you know, be suspicious. You know, a headache might not be a headache, a learning disability, um, a behavioral disability, um, you know, uh, an eating disorder. Um, all of these are, you know, synonymous with CO poisoning and, you know, at various stages of the poisoning. Those are great tips. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, we first met you or, or were introduced to you in a CPSC workshop for various safety issues at the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is focused on. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Absolutely. So the CPSC has long recognized the issue of carbon monoxide poisoning, not just the acute poisoning that causes death, but also the um, long-term uh, poisoning that causes injuries. And um, they are working to uh, investigate new standards to um, mandate uh, fuel shutoffs on all equipment that produces CO. Um, it'd be very similar to brakes on a vehicle, right? Um, we have a number of different safety features on vehicles. We have brakes, anti-lock brakes, emergency brakes, seat belts, but yet we have appliances in our home that could potentially kill us without any brakes or safety features. So these fuel shutoffs would be, um, say, brakes for uh, appliances. Um, and I believe they're investigating those on furnaces. Um, we were very successful in introducing a standard on portable generators that have CO shutoffs. 
um, and then also introducing new standards for gas ranges. And I believe there's um, an, a new bill that was passed um, September, sorry, I don't recall the ex exact month, but the CO safety bill of 2021, which provides um, money to states and territories for alarms and CO education. So we're working with the National Association of State Fire Marshals to help create the messaging and education uh, to support that bill. Well, that sounds great. Thank you for the work that you're doing. It seems like you are making progress. It, I, we know that it just takes time. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, the hardest part is, you know, to be patient because uh, change does happen, but sometimes it just happens slowly. So uh, we're going to keep plugging away and, you know, um, hopefully with the more people who um, are become aware of these issues um, will shine a light and help uh, speed change. Well, it's certainly inspiring to hear about what you've done, and we are looking forward to kind of walking alongside you um, and your work and supporting it in any way we can. And listeners, hope you listened up to this interview and get some of these safety features in your house to keep you and your family safe. Especially as we start to get into colder weather and families, you know, start to gather around the holidays they're going to be here before we know it. We just want to make sure that uh, we we have our, our listeners take these recommendations from Sharon seriously and get some of those detectors in place so that your holidays can be safe with your families. Thank you, Karen and Megan. I really appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing to keep kids safe. Thank you, Sharon. And please share this important podcast with your families and your friends. Share it on social media. Share it in an email. Do whatever you can to keep your family safe this year. And I have learned so much during this interview, Sharon. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And if your listeners would like to learn more, they can go, they can subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on social media, uh, ncoaa.us. Um, happy, happy to um, uh, have their support and uh, educate in any way possible. Sharon, thanks for being here with us today and continue your great work. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would please um, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends and family, we would be so grateful. And with that, have a great week and we'll talk with you soon.